Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. And man, was it hard to find a window this week for us to both be on Skype at the same time. But we did, Stu. So as we are talking right now, and we're going to get to our guest a little later in the podcast, that is Chris Felica, who a lot of you may know from College Game Day and a lot of other things. We'll get to Chris in a little bit because it's still the NCAA tournament. And he is, as you know, if you follow him, he's a good resource for that, especially on the gambling side of things. But Stu is on the road. He has ventured into the Southwest. Stu, please tell me you found a Torchy's Tacos. I mean, I think I hit... In my um, 24 hours or so in Austin, I hit both of your favorite eateries, Papacitos the first night, Torchies the second night. Oh my God, now I'm very jealous, yes. Torchies is unbelievable. I can't even emphasize enough. Like, I live in a part of the country that has good Mexican food and good tacos. That's the best taco you're going to have. Well, certainly of a uh, fast, casual variety. So. Yeah. And by the way, tomorrow, this is Wednesday, on Thursday I'll be in Norman and they've got one there too, so I might have to double dip. Yeah. That's, I mean, you're, you're well positioned there. So you should double dip. So, uh, all right. But people don't want to hear about your food choices and your diet. They want to hear about your trip. So let me ask you, cause you and I really haven't talked about this much. So you have been at UT, you've been at A&M, but the first place I want to ask you about is Oklahoma state. Mike Gundy has once again, gone off the grid to some degree in hiring his offensive coordinator, like with, uh, the last hire he made was from a, a small school in Pennsylvania. He went to an Ivy League school this time. So tell me about the new OC for the Cowboys. Yeah, I got to have lunch with Sean Gleason, who is the new OC there. Young guy who, not just he said not just him, but his whole fa- anyone in his family has never lived this far west. They're all Jersey, uh, New Jersey, East Coast guys. He went to school at Williams. Mike Gundy, though, says it's not quite, everybody wants to make that comparison. His predecessor, Gundy, like literally Googled, you know, he's like, this guy was producing championship, you know, back-to-back Ivy League championships, big offenses at Princeton, prolific quarterback. So he was on people's radar. In fact, he said when he called him, he was about to, I don't know if he's, he either had or was about to interview with Cliff Kingsbury for the Cardinals. So he was on people's radar, but he's just not on our radar. You know, I didn't know anything about him. So now one thing about Oklahoma State is, it's not a situation where they, he hires an OC to come in and install his own offense. He's going to run Mike Gundy's offense that has been so prolific over the last decade or so, but try to put his own stamp on it. Obviously, teaching the quarterbacks is a big part of that. So I'm, I'm interested to see it. I mean, once again, they've got weapons on offense like they always do. Defensively, though, they replace a lot. You know, I think I met with Jim Knowles, their D.C. I think that's got to be one of the most thankless jobs in college football, frankly, to be the D.C. at Oklahoma State. They're never good on defense. They may have their moments, but it's, for whatever reason, they've always struggled to... But that's basically the whole Big 12, Stu. I mean... For the most part. I mean, TCU's obviously been able to feel good defenses. And it's not, they're, they've had a couple years where they... Maybe they gave up yards, but they created turnovers, or they had good red zone defense. But they're never... You know, you just never... You never see Oklahoma State ranked highly on defense. Yeah, I know. I'm just thinking of, like, you're in that state in Oklahoma where obviously Mike Stu's no longer is the D.C. and Alex Grinch has taken over. But you had Brent Venables, who was there, and now Brent Venables is one of the toasts of college football for what he's done with the Clemson defense. And, you know, you've seen other guys go into that conference. David Gibbs, a great example, did really well at Houston. And then, you know, they had a massive undertaking in Lubbock. But just to get back to Gleason a little more, 
did you get a sense of what, like from talking to him, what you think will be able to see from them that's different maybe than what Mike Yersich did there in Stillwater? You know, his influences are that kind of Northeast corridor. Joe Moorhead, uh, when he was at Fordham, he said Fordham and Princeton would have a lot of visits with each other, took a lot of stuff from him, took a lot of stuff from Bill O'Brien. So the question is, how hard or easy will that be to recognize? Because at the end of the day, like I said, he's been tasked with coming in, learning Gundy's offense, and calling plays from Gundy's offense. I think maybe the best way he'll be measured is, you know, they've got to break in another new quarterback this year. Cornelius was a senior last year. He only started for one season. So is it going to be Drew Brown, the transfer from Hawaii, who he was a grad transfer last year. So I think a lot of people assumed he would start right away. And then not only did he not start, he sat, he redshirted. Is it going to be him or is it going to be the redshirt freshman, Spencer Sanders, who's considered uh, maybe a little, you know, good passer, maybe a little bit more of a runner. I think uh, that's, where we'll find out what kind of influence he has is is how quickly he can develop one of those quarterbacks. Yeah, and he has some good running backs. Chuba Hubbard, I remember going, you know, super fast kid from Canada. They lose Justice Hill. Uh, they're going to be interesting because I, I feel like, and we'll get to this in a second, but everybody's obviously talking about OU and Texas now. And I don't want to say they're writing off Oklahoma State. Maybe they are writing off Oklahoma State a little bit. Tell me where you, tell me after spending a day there, which do you, do you, what do you see for them in 2019? Mike Gundy was pretty candid about, because you look back to last season, they were a big disappointment. But they were, they were a 6-6 six and six team or 7-6 and six team that beat uh, West Virginia and Texas, who finished second and third in the conference, and took Oklahoma, the champion, down to the last second. So they clearly had it. And they also beat Boise State pretty handily. So they clearly had it in them. They just weren't consistent. And Gundy was very candid about, you know, that's on me. Uh, we were a top 25 caliber team that instead of going 10 and 2, like they had the past few years, went 6 and 6. And I've got to fix that. You know, says he, he got, he basically said, I got complacent after all these years of uh, having NFL quarterbacks and receivers and, and winning 10 games a year. So I think they should be better. Now, the area where they lost the most was their defensive line, they lost everybody. And that's kind of the one thing they were good at defense last year was sacks, pass rush. So if that group doesn't develop, then they could be in trouble because that's going to hinder the whole defense. But they've got good, they feel like they got a really good secondary. You can always count on them to have good skill players. Tylen Wallace was a Blitnikoff finalist last year. I think they should be better. It's not like there's an obvious, we expect OU and Texas to be the favorites, but there's not like there's an obvious third team right now in that conference, right? No, we expect West Virginia, or at least I expect West Virginia to take a big step back with all the players they lost. I think I think Iowa State should be good. I think like you were last year, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see what TCU is going to be like. But you're right. I mean, to me, because West Virginia, I think, takes a big step back, I think there is something of a void. So I'll ask you now, you met with Tom Herman, you you, you were in Austin for a day there. You haven't been that optimistic. I don't think from talk, you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You didn't sound like you were a believer that Texas was going to be a top 10 team. Did anything change your mind from this visit? Yeah, I was, I've definitely been skeptical of them. In fact, we have a mailbag question that we'll just kind of answer inadvertently right now about that. You know how it is. You go to these schools and, and you always come away feeling optimistic about the team because everybody is, it's the spring. Everybody's feeling pretty good about things. I do think that I maybe, underappreciated 
how good Sam Ellinger became last year and thus how much how and, and now going into his third season as a college quarterback what elite level kind of passing game they could have this season I think that that snuck up on a lot of people last year because he was obviously you know struggled as a true freshman he loses his top receiver from last year but guys like Colin Johnson a bunch of guys are back got to see a little bit of Brew McCoy out there on the practice field I think uh Everybody's pretty confident he'll be available, and if so, will have an impact. So, did they say why why they think he will get eligible? Nobody came out and said a specific reason, but I just think that it just feels like to everybody in the business, it feels like like it's almost like what would you have to say on your waiver application to not get it granted at this point? You know, I think I do think the Tate Martell one was pretty eye opening. We the, the explanation, at least, you know, the people who who have reported through back channels, is that. Basically, Ohio State didn't fight to keep him, and Ohio State supported his waiver, therefore he got it. But it, uh, it was, you know, the way uh, the Miami Herald cast it was that that Ohio State was kind of running uh, Tate Martell off. I don't think anyone at USC is going to say that they were they were happy that Bruce McCoy was leaving. No, but I think that they're not going to. I mean, I think I would assume USC will will. You, you, one of the things is the school previous school has to support it. You remember with Shea Patterson at first. Ole Miss very much contested it. If USC supports the Brew McCoy waiver, and it's a pretty obvious situation where he signed with the school and then the guy who recruited him immediately left, I mean, how would they justify that? But, but Stu, and in fairness, that wasn't Cliff Kingsbury wasn't the only guy who recruited Brew McCoy. Sure. I mean, Cliff Kingsbury wasn't there long enough to really recruit Brew McCoy very long. I'm just saying, I don't think it's a lock that USC is going to be as supportive of him, of Brew McCoy getting eligible as Ohio State was, of Tate Martell moving on. Oklahoma State's got a guy in this same situation themselves. Israel Antoine, Mm -hmm. defensive tackle who actually, as a true freshman, started a bunch of games last year for Colorado, uh, but is from Oklahoma and is back, and they feel like they're they're counting on him being eligible. I just think that it seems... Now, they could reverse this at any moment and because the NCAA is wildly arbitrary like that. But it feels right now like the attitude is, we don't want to be the bad guy. So if this guy has a, even a semi-decent reason for wanting that waiver, we'll just grant it. So if they We're, don't grant it to Brew McCoy, how do they justify that having also granted, but by the same time having granted all these other ones? It's the NCAA, Stu. They don't justify things. <laughs> I mean, you've been paying attention. Okay, so give me a little more on Texas here. Now that you're drinking some of the Goulet, it seems like. Well, you're definitely going to need the guys from the last two recruiting classes, the two full Tom Herman classes, to guys, not just Brew McCoy, but a bunch of others are going to have to be able to have an impact right away. But, you know, I think a key guy in all this is Keontae Ingram, the going to be a sophomore now running back. You know, Texas has not had a... They had um, Deontay Foreman, who was a 2,000-yard rusher, who I think uh, in Charlie Strong's last season, was by the end of it, seemed like he was carrying 40 times a game. But in Herman's first two seasons, they have not been able to run the ball very well. They feel really good about Ingram, feel that the offensive line will be a lot better, and he'll benefit from that. So if you've got a good passing game, and if he ends up being who they think he could be, you know, now they have to replace a bunch of guys on defense, but I think the offense could be, I guess what I'm saying is, even if the defense stays the same or even regresses a little bit, the offense could be, I'm not saying will be, could be that much better. What do you think? You know, I think so. I mean, look, well, Jordan Humphrey was a terrific weapon for them because he was so smart and really good in the slot, even though he's a big receiver. I'm curious. The offensive line, 
They had some transfers. They had some grad transfers come in now. You're right. I mean, Deontay Foreman was a beast for them at the, you know, I think I did three of Charlie Strong's last four games and, and saw that team a lot up close and he carried them. And, and there was a big drop off in terms of what they had in the run game last year. I know they're excited about Ingram. We'll see if he can and be the guy. You know, I think they're a really good team and I think they're going to be coming out with a lot of confidence. It just seemed like the switch flipped there from our Maryland game early on to where they were. And certainly by the end of the year, what they did to Georgia. So I think there's plenty of reason for enthusiasm. I think they're one of the more intriguing teams. I don't, you know, I'm not ready to go out there and say that they're a a playoff caliber team, but I think they're a top 10 team. I just, there's that gap between being a really good team and potentially a great team. I don't know if they have enough guys in the first two levels of their defense to be a legit playoff team because I think they'll be good in the secondary even though they lost the corners and they lost some good players back there you know losing Gary Johnson who at times could be really good because he was so fast but that you know defensive line they lost they've lost guys the last two years and I just don't think they've been they haven't been that good up front without a difference maker wise and I don't know if they have that guy those guys ready now to make an impact so we'll see I if mean, you if you're believing in them as a top 10 team then or even a playoff contender you're putting a lot of faith in guys like on defense, guys like Malcolm Roach, Brandon Jones, guys who have been so there a while. A lot of faith, and I'm putting a lot of faith in Sam and Colin Johnson. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying, yeah, look, that, I mean, Oklahoma, that could be a really good offense, but I don't know about that defense. Well, look, Oklahoma. I don't know if they're they're not going to be Baker Mayfield explosive, but it's not like Oklahoma had a very good defense the last couple of years. They were so good on offense, right? And I think that's that could be similar to what Texas can be. I don't know if their offensive line can be as good as what Oklahoma's has been the last couple of years, but I think that I'm a believer in, in Sam Ellinger. I think they're they're really good, and he has weapons, so I think they can be really dangerous. Want to uh, hear want to hear a crazy Sam Ellinger stat that Tom Herman offered up, and that we then <laughs> verified last year? And this is, again, where it kind of sneaks up on you just how good a season he had last year: twenty five passing touchdowns, fifteen running touchdowns those aren't the exact numbers he had he he had at least 25 passing touchdowns and at least 15 rushing touchdowns one of only six power five quarterbacks to do that in the last 20 years and the other five were all heisman winners wow that's a good stat can you name the other five of 25 and 15 25 and 15 last 20 years power five i would guess cam newton's one yep johnny manziel's another Mm mm-hmm Marcus Mariota's another. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Troy Smith, maybe? No, no, no Troy Smith. By the How way, Mariota's the one that... Mariota is by far the, the biggest achiever in this category. Yeah, he's statistically... 42 a, passing TDs and 15 rushing TDs. Yeah, I don't one know. One guy I, that you haven't mentioned yet did it two years in a row. Let me think for a second. Baker? No. Uh, Kyler Murray. Wait a minute, Kyler Murray didn't have that many... It's the it's the rushing touchdowns part. It's the, of it. it's the rushing touch. You can have be hang on. I can have a thousand rushing yards. Tebow, so I get fifteen. Tebow, yep. So the last one left is a recent Heisman winner. Jeez, I'm trying to remember who would have been. When when I say it, you're gonna go. Oh, of course. I'm struggling right now to think who won it right before Baker. Since we're on since we're on a, sh- it's a short time crunch here, let me just go ahead and say. Yep. Lamar Jackson, back back to back seasons. You're right. Also, a couple of group of five guys have done it, just, just to throw that in as a bonus. Dan LaFever at Central Michigan, mm-hmm. twice, and Jordan Lynch in his uh, 
Orange Bowl season at NIU. So right. that's pretty pretty good company for Ellinger. All right, so let's get to your trip to College Station. I think it's the first time you've been there in a long time for any extended length of time, right? Well, I was there for the Clemson game last year, but in terms of like a off-season visit, yeah, it had, it had been a while. It was also pro day, so it was a little hectic there that day. But I did spend a little bit of time with Jimbo Fisher and a little bit of time Kellen Mond. I'm interested to hear, like, you know, you're saying you think Texas can be a top 10 team. I'm see, starting to see that. I am having trouble seeing that with A&M. Now, the hype is, is going to be there. Clearly, they're going to have a lot of chances to showcase themselves. They play what will probably be the top three preseason teams. All, they play all of them, right? They play Clemson, they play Alabama, and they play Georgia. So it's a brutal schedule. Jimbo talked very optimistically and very excitedly about basically the whole team. But, you know, they lost Travion Williams, who was so important to that offense, Jay Sternberger, who was Kellen Mond's go-to leading receiver as a tight end. Now all the receivers are back. But on defense, I mean, their top six tacklers are all gone. So we get to find out pretty quickly how much is he, is he, I mean, we, I think people are optimistic he will get there soon to be one of those programs that just, that just reloads every year. But are they there yet? So what is the, what was the biggest reason why people think or why you, sh- you would think coming away from your visit that they will, I mean, not only did three of the top, maybe three of the top three teams, they got to play LSU on the road. And LSU, I think, will be a top six team. So that's four of the top six. Mm-hmm. And three of those games, by the way, are on the road, Georgia, LSU, and Clemson. There's no doubt there's talent on that team, especially young talent. But there's, it's one of those things where if you're an A&M fan or if you're just an optimist about A&M general, sure, you could look down this depth chart and say, like, this guy, this guy. But it's a lot of ifs, right? First of all, the biggest one is, Kellen Mond, by the end of last season, had what you would consider to be a decent season statistically, and he certainly had a great performance against Clemson in Week 2. He had, a, uh, obviously, the seven-overtime game against LSU, and he won a bowl game. But he had a lot of down moments in there, too. So it's like, if Kellen Mond takes the next step as a quarterback, and if their young running back, uh, Deshaun Corbin, steps up and is the next Travion Williams, which, by the way, they all think he will be, if not better. If, That's a big statement, yeah, if, if not better. Yeah, I mean, the guy had a 100-yard kickoff return last year. He, he's, a, he's a playmaker. Um, will he, he produce at the level Travion did? I don't know. Will some of these receivers who were inconsistent last year be better? And then, of course, who are the next wave of guys on defense? Like, Jimbo is very high on Leon O'Neal, uh, who will be a sophomore next year, safety. Justin Matabuke, the defensive tackle. Buddy Johnson at line. But these are all guys who have flashed, but these are not established standout defensive players by any means. So I, I think they'll things are going to happen there at some point under Jimbo. I don't think there's any question. But is it going to be this year? I kind of feel like it's maybe year three. So year three, you think they go to the playoff? Hey, now. <laughs> you love trying to put words in my mouth that maybe somebody will aggregate somewhere. Uh, yeah. Let, get back to me on that after the end of year two. It could be another... And look, it could be a season where they... they I wouldn't be surprised if they beat, upset one of those big three teams, and then lose to Auburn, right? Like, it could be one of the... I mean, we talked about them at length on the... When we were talking about over-unders, there's a seven and a half, which seems low. But then you look at the schedule and go, hmm, to get to eight, they're going to have to beat at least one of Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, LSU. All right, and before we get to the mailbag, Stu, you were on this before because you were on the road, but I had a really good sit-down with Chris Felica, and we talked about a lot of stuff, including how a guy behind the camera became 
an on-camera star on a huge college football show. So let's get to our guest. Bring on the bear. I am pleased to be joined by my former colleague at ESPN and one of my favorite people from my old place. You see him on college game day a lot now, and you're seeing him more and more as his his intelligence and his insight is being picked by a lot of different aspects of ESPN. He is Chris Felica. Chris, thanks for joining us on the Audible today. Absolutely. Good to uh, catch up with you in the off season. Uh, yeah. Well, there's no off season for you, it seems. So I follow you on Twitter, as I encourage uh, all our listeners to. But you. You are the odds guy now. So quickly, tell us about the show that you and Stanford Steve have become a big part of that's more than just college football, certainly. It's been fun. I mean, we've been on with the Daily Wager now for a couple of weeks. We started up on uh, Championship Weekend, and it's been a lot of fun. I mean, the uh, uh, feedback we've gotten from people has been that they've enjoyed it. It seems like it's gaining a little bit of popularity. And I know during the show, I've certainly seen some some tweets saying that people – tuned in for the first time and really like it and going to continue watching. So, uh, yeah, 6 to 7 Eastern on, uh, on ESPN News for now and, and the app. And it, it's funny, getting back to something that you said about uh, no off-season, you're really right because I'm uh, I'm in the midst of a, uh, a heck of a run here. From, uh, from, the, from, the, from the title game till about the end of February, I'm pretty good in terms of having some downtime. But between uh, SEC tournament uh, and Selection Sunday with Vital. To be out with to be out in Vegas with Steve uh, last week to uh, next week Final Four right into the Masters then got off but home for about a week or so and then right in back to Nashville for the NFL Draft where College Gambia is going to be having a a big presence on Thursday and Friday as well so it seems like the next seven weeks or so I'm working uh, just as much or if not more than I do during a uh, football season. Let's kind of start this maybe in a, like a familiar ESPN way. So what if I told you Chris Felica as a student <laughs> at at Miami some. 25 years ago that you'd be an on-camera star on college game day in addition to all these other things now that you've become a front-facing person about what would this reality have seemed like back then to you you dream about it and you think that you'd love to think that it's possible and you, you make your contacts and you work hard and you try and get better and learn a lot but the fact that you're actually doing it now is pretty surreal. Gosh, I, I can remember being a, a student in Miami and, and being in the SID, and I remember uh, Chris Fowler coming down to do pieces and Craig James being around, and all these guys from ESPN would, would be around. It's like, wow, you, you were kind of in awe. And then fast forward to about uh, five or six years later in, in 96 when I started around Gimby, and here I am working with Fowler. You know, it's been a pretty good run for a couple of uh, Miami alums, in addition to what I'm doing here at ESPN. Uh, Ron Berkowitz, a classmate of mine, obviously he's made a pretty good niche for himself and carved out a good living with his association with A-Rod and the agency. And uh, Jim Favola was another, another classmate of mine. He has, has a big role with the uh, uh, Las Vegas Golden Knights. So uh, we, we've made a yeah, Jill Arrington as well. We've made, we've made a good little mark there. Yeah. I, I, so what's interesting to me is you, like me, kind of did not come in through this traditionally. Uh, I mean, you, you did have, as you mentioned, I know you spent some time with, with student radio and some of the ways that maybe we see a lot of the traditional on, on-air people doing it. But you were a researcher for a long time and, and grinding away behind the scenes and helping the shows get to be what they are. And from my own background, I just remembered a couple of things. When I first started ESPN, this was pretty clear to me. 
I remembered, this was way before ESPN News, something had happened where they went into the old newsroom and they had to go on air. And I don't know if Bob Lee was in yet. I just remembered there was a guy on TV who I don't know if he'd ever been on TV at ESPN. Now, he might have been on TV someplace else, you know, but it was just like they threw him on air just to give some kind of update. And I remember thinking, well, like, like that's almost like the guy who comes out of the stands to kick a you know an extra point just because some some catastrophe happened or whatever you know but you just don't see people who are like how did this happen you know kind of that thing so you were behind the scenes at ESPN for how many years before they said hey why don't we put you on camera it was gosh it was a while i would say at least 15 years or so because i, I can remember for a while uh, Kirk and Lee Fitting, who you know as well, they uh, had a college show, game day for a long time. They were around me so, so often in, in the meetings, and they know my passion and my knowledge and things that kind of get me going. And, and they, and they, for a while, had wanted to get me like more involved in the telecast and maybe putting a little camera on it and i was a little hesitant at first i mean i won't lie i was like you know what i don't want to be like the butt of a joke or a punchline or come across as this like rambling stammering idiot and uh, i was a little hesitant and then finally when the show expanded to uh i think it was two and a half hours maybe we went to or maybe it was the first year we went to three lee basically said no nope, we're gonna do it we're gonna figure out a way to do it it might have been 2012 might have been the first year that we actually started doing this maybe 2013 and uh we kind of figure out a, a way to get me in there every now and then to give some picks or perspective or a good historical nugget. And then I guess it would have been four years ago, we debuted the board where, where it kind of was like, you know what, we understand people are betting on these games. We got coach with us, uh, not so fast, my friend, closer than the experts think, and kind of giving code, all those information. You know what, our audience is watching. They know what we're talking about. We can do it in such a way where we're presenting it in a good fashion, a knowledgeable fashion, and not screaming and yelling. And, and I think we have, and it's been it's been great to see that little niche turn into going on Sports Center and doing things. Or the, the, the podcast is being well received, and the the, the picks column each week is great. And now we have a, a daily gambling show. And, and something that you mentioned there, I, I think, really, uh, it actually hit home earlier today when I'm, I'm firing out a bunch of. NCAA tournament-related notes, trends, and stats. And at heart, no, no matter where this goes, if it goes nowhere in terms of my on-air ability or my branch out and do more, at heart, I'm always going to be like that researcher, that stat guy, always historian, like always digging and looking for little trends and notes and, and stats and just kind of things that, that, that that's really near and dear to my heart. Yeah, and just from being there at ESPN a long time, I always remembered, you know, just per- personally pulling for you and, and pulling for Brad Edwards, who was another guy who was a behind-the-scenes guy, and, and which, what you could tell, especially I could tell with Kirk and Corso, how much they respected that you were there to help make them look even smarter and just help on the details because it's it's a long show. I remember, you know, there's times I remember being in where I was in the same city you guys were and I would run into Fowler at 930. He was downstairs in a lobby or something, basically writing a mass, you know, just like an insane amount of work. I I don't even remember if it was two hours at the time, but just... There's a lot of that stuff. So knowing what went into this show, I'm curious. You know the scope of it you know, better than anybody else probably or just about anybody else. How nervous were you the first time they said, okay, you're going on camera tomorrow? The funny thing is I wasn't really nervous because 
Hey, that little camera, I don't even see it, to be honest. Like, I'm just, I take it as a conversation, like I would be talking to, whether it was Chris and now Reese, Kirk, Coach, Dez, David, Maria. I, I take it as like we're just having a conversation like we would in the meeting or uh, on a conference call. And I think that's kind of the beauty and the natural part of it is that it is a little raw. It's, a, it's very authentic and it's not made to be made to be pretty. I mean, it's just who I am and, and, and what it is. So I, I really wasn't nervous the first time they said, okay, we're going to, this is going to be today. Now, I, I think I got a little nervous maybe when I had a pinch hit as the, uh, the guest picker out at USC one year where we had a bunch of last minute cancellations. And, and that was, a, that was a little weird to be on actually on the main set, but we got through it. It was fine. And it turned out, turned out great. We just had fun with coach, but I, I think that's been the blessing in disguise. And all of this is that it's people that I've been around and I'm familiar with that. It, it just, it's relaxing. It's it's just like I'm talking to them outside with the uh, being on television. Yeah, just as a, a an aside. So there was a year that before the season, I remember they were gonna. I was supposed to do something. It was not on camera. It was these were like a phoner, and you this is when USC was rolling. I remember they were playing somebody not great in the opener, and they wanted an update beforehand. And I knew some people within the program, and so I talked to Fitting the night before. And I remember as I'm telling him what. You know, I thought might be the, you know, the little 45 minute hit, mm-hmm. you know, I could hear him typing like throughout it. I mean, just and I was like, OK. And then he got back to me with like basically what he what I said, but was going to be the script. And this is the night before. And obviously I'm three hours living in L.A. It's three hours earlier. And I'm now like my wife had done TV in college and everything. And I remember I was telling her this and she was like, don't try to memorize this. And I was like, you know, at one point I'm like, well, I'm off camera. I could actually just read this. But I got myself, I got into my own head so bad that I remember the first paragraph went pretty smooth. But then I got to a point where it was like, and Chris, and then I would go on for two sentences. And it was almost like somebody dumped like a glass of sand down my throat. And I could not get to the finish line. I was like, oh, my God, this is horrible. And it's just like one of those things where I think you can psych yourself out. I mean, now it's to the point where it's like. I'm not saying I don't get amped up when I'm about to go on camera for an open or something, but just it's one of those things where you can make it as hard as you want it to be. You're you're right, because I have a similar parallel with that when I started doing the the Friday segments for uh, whether it was six o'clock sports center or for raps, like the first couple of times I, I, I would do the same exact thing. I would write out basically, here's exactly what I want to say word for word. I'm just going to read it off the paper and just, I want to make sure I get every little number and sentence pause in. And then I discovered, don't even bother with that. It took a couple of times, but I'm like, you know what? It's so much easier just to sit there, bullet points, be natural, don't memorize it. Whatever happens, happens. And it it just looks and sounds better and more authentic. Yeah. One of the challenges, and I don't know if you had this too, which I definitely have had is because you're not Reese Davis or you're not Kirk or you're not, you know, who or Desmond or whoever the, you know, the guy who he's either the former star player or the, the professional TV guy, you feel like, at least I did, and I think a lot of reporters may, may feel this way, is you're going to try to have so much stuff that you want to justify why they're putting you on camera and you, you end up doing too much. And it's hard for you're trying to jam it all into like a 40 second window. And so you're rushing and it's just like and the reader and the viewer can't grab it all. 
So I don't know. Do you find like it's challenging to be d- disciplined to not overload your spots? Yes. And, and I think the effect of trying to get so much in is that you have a tendency, at least I do, I should say, to just speed up and go fast and not be as clear as you can be. I always try to tell myself, like, if you think you're going slow, if you think you're going at a reasonable pace, even take it like another, like half a beat down and slow it down even more because you're probably going faster than you think you are. And, and, and that was the feedback I got the most when I started doing some of these things was your info is great. Your knowledge, we know you're smart. We know you clearly, we, we know you can do it or else we, we wouldn't allow you to just have to just slow it down a bit. And everything. And since then it's been the best recommendation I've gotten. Just, you know, we know you got to just, just slow down a little bit. You know, it's funny, Brad Edwards, not a TV guy by trade, probably gave me as good a TV advice as anybody up in Bristol ever did. Not to say that I didn't get good advice from people, but he once told me, and this was after like doing college football live in the studio, he said, smile even though you're not sure if you're on camera. And smile, like, because especially with guys, and I, I don't know if I would put you in the same boat as me in this regard, but it's almost like sometimes your default face is not is not uh, Maria Taylor's default face or like I would imagine Gene has this where, you know, if you look serious or you look intense, you know, sometimes that's not the greatest thing for on camera. It's like, like you don't want to look ticked off and just, we want to look like you're having fun. I think we, we had on our, on our podcast back in January, we had Laura Rutledge and she told us how she has like, keeps a note to herself basically about like, I don't know if it was about the release when she first got, got announced that she was going to be on these shows just to remind herself, Hey, you want, this is what you want to do. You love this. Make sure you, you know, I mean, this is how I interpret it. Make sure that the viewer knows and you remember to enjoy what you're doing because it's sports and it's supposed to be fun. Exactly. You're there. It's just kind of just basking a little bit. understand what a great accomplishment it is. And you're doing something that you love doing and it's okay to be, showing that you're happy about doing it excited about doing it uh, emotion like that's good but by the way if you can if we can have uh, my wife actually like kind of like finally break through to me to like I'll tell me smile it's okay it's, smiling's not something that really comes naturally to me so that, that, that's uh, it's a, a bit of a challenge at time and, and even when I am like I don't know what it is I, I, I can I can give a little bit of a faint one but but she was whenever we had a picture or whatever you smile and I am no, you're not. So even when it's not on television, I have difficulty uh, smiling. You know what? It's me, you, and Antonio Bryant. I remember uh, I remember doing a story on him and said, like, his default face looked like a scowl. You know, people kind of read his body language. And you and I have a mutual friend who I had this conversation with him and his wife about, like, I, I don't smile normally in photos. And I was like, ah, I feel like it's disingenuous. It's like, I'm not, I wouldn't be normally smiling. Now I'm putting, you know, putting on the fake face or whatever. And so I think there's some of us who have that in common. And it's just, if you're on TV, it's something that, you know, like it's not, it's not, even though you want it to be natural, it's really not natural. So you got to try to make it as, keep it as authentic, which is one of the things, Jimmy, you're on with Stanford Steve. I think that's Stanford Steve. And that's why I think he's popular, uh, you know, because people see that he's, you know, can tell that it's real. So you got to try to, you know, find that balance. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, because you were talking, you're talking about your Twitter feed. And so I see a lot of the stuff that you, you tweet out 
And I'm going to throw two of them out that came up in the last day or two that I've noticed. And these are related to the NCAA tournament. We're obviously in the middle of the tournament. So these are nuggets. Bruce Pearl's team has been an underdog in seven NCAA tournament games. And in those seven games, they have three outright wins, two other one-point losses, and they're five and two against the spread. Obviously, Bruce Pearl, former Tennessee coach, is now at Auburn. They're in the Sweet 16 for our listeners who are just pure college football fans. The other one. At Oregon, Dana Altman is 14-4 and against the spread, and in games, the Ducks aren't favored. He's 9-1 and against the spread with six outright wins, including one pick'em. So I'm asking you this. As a researcher, I think you are wired to come up with what used to be those Howie Schwab kind of get this, mm-hmm. though they're really interesting. How do you balance those kinds of things that you find interesting with – are they interesting? How relevant do you think they are when it comes to giving people gambling advice? I think both. I think there's some things where there's a sample size that isn't necessarily great, but and of course it's not like run to the window and bet this. But but I do think in situations where certain coaches who and it relates to college football as well. We look at look at the notes about Urban Meyer as an underdog. I think he was like six and zero at Ohio State or six and one. Finally, lost one game. I think he might have. Or Dabo Swinney as an underdog in, in Tom Herman in big games. Exactly. If you are denying that emotion and situations in college athletics doesn't matter when you're dealing with eighteen and nineteen year old kids. You're dead wrong. I think there are certain coaches out there who can play up this underdog. Uh, the world doesn't think you can win. You aren't good enough. And they can get kids who maybe aren't as good as the favorite, but they're in that role. But they can get them to believe and buy in and make them really competitive in a stage like this. So I do think there is something to certain coaches, certain situations that when they are an underdog, I think you do need to pay certain attention. Or even in teams, the note that I had about the, uh, the two and three seeds that failed to cover in the uh, first and second round on route to the, uh, the Sweet 16. I, I think that lends some credence as well because what that means, in, in my opinion, is you've got teams that are really, really good. And the first couple of rounds, they've done kind of just enough to get by and didn't put, didn't play to the how they could throughout the, 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 the course of the year. And now, against a really good opponent in the 16, they're going to raise their level even more. They're going to have uh, that game that they're used to playing to throughout the course of the year. And I think it makes them, I think both Tennessee and LSU fit into that spot where LSU is a, a good size underdog against Michigan State and Tennessee is a, like a slight favorite against Purdue. But they haven't played their best game yet and they're still here. And I would think as two really good teams, they're probably going to play their best game this weekend. And uh, I, I think there's something to that as well. Which non-one seed do you think has the best chance to make it to the Final Four? I think it's probably Florida State. And I think there are a couple of reasons. I think if you look at their athleticism and their depth, this is a team in the last, what, seven weeks. The only team that's beaten them, they lost to Duke and they lost to North Carolina. And this is a team that clearly can compete with anyone. And I think if you look at the matchup with Gonzaga, they beat the you know why out of Gonzaga last year on the Sweet 16 and really gave Hachimura and those guys a lot of problems. So I think the Knowles were confident knowing that they had beaten this team already. They could potentially beat them again. And again, another situation where you've got a head coach in Leonard Hamilton 
who has done very, very well in the underdog role uh, with, with his teams in the tournament, getting them to, to buy in, getting them to believe. I mean, athletically, Florida State doesn't take a backseat to anybody. So if I had to pick one of the non-ones to get to the Final Four, I think it would, it would be the Seminoles. Yeah, and on that note, in Chris's Twitter feed, as we said, you should follow it if you already don't, Leonard Hamilton's teams are 7-1 and one against the spread with five outright wins as an underdog in the NCAA tournament. Uh, you, 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 know, you, know, you know what the, fun, the funny thing is? You know what the one loss was against the number? The, uh, the, the Tulsa game in 2000 at Miami when uh, the, the Canes got to the Sweet 16 and went, wound up facing the, uh, the Bill Self Tulsa team. And then that, that uh, North Carolina team with Gutridge that went to the Final Four, uh, I think they were an 8 seed that year. And I, they won the 8-9 game, I know that. So that, that was the one loss. You, uh, you, you lose to Tulsa in Austin with a uh, with an eight or a nine seed potentially waiting in the in the Elite Eight to go to the Final Four. That, that, that one still hurts. That was a really, really good Miami team that got a little bit underseeded. They didn't have as good of a regular season as they did the previous year, but they still had a lot of guys like the Hemsley was going on that team, but Mario Blatt, uh, they were really good. So uh, there, there's a little Miami uh, tangent sidetrack, side, side but... Uh, yeah, that was the one ATS lost, Tulsa 2000, Sweet 16. Much better than the Miami teams when I was a student there with Constantine Popa and Samar Logan oh. and, oh, God, I've got the 6-1 guard, Josh Morton or Jake Morton. Michael Gardner, Jake Morton. Jake Morton, yeah. Anthony Lawrence, how far do you want to go? Stephen Edwards? Douglas Edwards, I'm sorry. No, 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 Stevie Edwards. Yeah, Douglas Edwards went to FSU, right? He was the 6-9 guy. Yeah. Gosh, I remember first getting... We were 0-18 that first year in the Big East. And then I can remember that first Big East win, they wound up beating uh, Luke Carnesecca in St. John's. It was 45-42 in one of the uh, one of the worst college basketball games I've ever seen. But hey, I, don't, I don't think I don't think Leonard really got the respect and praise and recognition for the job he did at Miami, building that program basically uh, from nothing. Because that program was dormant for a long time and then uh, came back like three years before Leonard got there. Remember they were playing downtown at the old yeah. convention center at the hotel and then uh, getting to Miami Arena and 4,000 fans a game for the first couple of years. And uh, by, like, by like my junior year, uh, they were really, really good. And they, I think they went like 7-2 and two at home uh, in like their Big East games. They got to be a really good team, especially on their home floor. And then obviously he left to go to the NBA for a while and then he's back. And I think he's been what Florida State 15 years now. It's crazy. Yeah, and he still looks like he's probably 15 years younger than he really is. <laughs> the uh, so uh, let's shift gears a little to your to the sport we know you most at. If I were to say to you, okay, let's take Clemson and Alabama out of this for a minute. Who do you think has the best chance to win a national title this this coming season? I would say probably Georgia, just because I think with Fields being, I don't want to say anything's been what was going on behind the scenes. I don't know that, but but I think just the way the season ended this year, the way the SEC championship game ended, the way they got blown out in the Sugar Bowl, I think the team that Kirby had last year is probably going to be the weakest team that he's going to have. There's no quarterback, like, who's going to play, who's going to start, is Fields going to play this week? We know it's Jake Fromm's team. Uh, yeah, they're going to need some some newcomers at wide receiver to step up and make some plays, but uh, I think defensively they'll be better. And again, they get Notre Dame at home, and it's just going to be a question if they wind up meeting Alabama again in the SEC championship game. Can they close it up? And I think Ohio State would be the uh, the next option with Fields being eligible now. Uh, that, that's a massive deal. But it's always seemed like the last couple of years, Ohio State has 
lost a game that it had no business losing. And maybe now with Ryan Day, that will change. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Maybe there was a week where Urban every now and then couldn't get through to his kids that, to take this opponent seriously. I know you're a big favorite, but you, you, you could live in the Iowa game, the Purdue game. Maybe that won't happen this week. Maybe Ryan will be able to get through to them different. But, I mean, they're, they're as talented as anyone in the country. I mean, yeah. You know, they go to Ann Arbor this year, so that'll be a little bit of a challenge. But, but, but I, 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 again, it's, it's kind of like the old the, the NBA deal that we're going through right now. It, everyone just kind of expects the Warriors to win. And I think if the national champion isn't, Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, or Ohio State, we've got a story. Yeah, I mean, that's the way it's that's the way it's defaulted to, and I think people are probably a little, I don't know, say, I think they're looking for new blood a little bit. Although I think a lot of people saw the way Clemson played as refreshing, yep. you know, so we'll see. It, um, it, it's so funny because, and I tried to say to people before that title game last year, and there was this perception, I still think that, Maybe it was because of what, what Clemson looked like the previous year with Kelly Bryant, all those great defensive guys that they had. Like People, I think, saw Clemson as like, okay, they're going to slug, slug fast, 23-17 type game. Like This is not that Clemson team. <laughs> this offense, statistically and efficiency-wise, is right there with, with anything Alabama's done as, as long as it, Lawrence has been back from injury. And, and I think... I had this conversation. I, I think people kind of enjoyed that national championship game because there's such, uh, like, disdain for the success that Nick Saban and Alabama had. I, I think, like, the neutral fan out there or the, the people who weren't rooting for Alabama, even if they weren't a Clemson fan, I, I think they took a little bit of joy in seeing Alabama take a loss like they haven't had in a long, long time. So uh, I'll, I'll be curious to see what, what winds up happening and how that Maybe it spurs Nick on and the, and the tide this year. Good, good. I was having a little conversation with uh, with someone yesterday, and just like the and it's timely because of the NCAA tournament going on right now. Like that's all anyone is talking of coming off the Duke UCF. It doesn't matter. I had my sister texting me, who I don't think she's watched a college basketball game ever. Like saying, "I'm in tears right now for those UCF kids." And, the popularity of the tournament with so many teams, it kind of crosses over from like sports fan to just common folk. And do you think that, like, that look at college football's postseason, outside of the playoff and then probably the Rose Bowl, no one gets excited really about like outside of like the, like the true fans of those teams. I almost wonder, like, I'm like anti-expansion or have been anti-expansion, but I almost wonder now, if you do give the playoff a, uh, another round and maybe play the first round, whether it's eight teams or, or whatever, and play a first round on home campuses to give more people a chance and you make the playoff bigger, maybe you'll get more of a buzz like the NCAA tournament does. Well, that's, that's my theory, too, is that if there's an 8-1 upset, I'm not saying that, that uh, whoever, whether you want to say it's a Boise or UCF or whoever you put in there, that they would necessarily run the table. But the fact that they could win one game, that wouldn't shock me, right? You know, like it, it, winning one game, I think, is – that. I don't say that would make the tournament, but that would create a lot of buzz because, look, what, look what we had in the semifinals the past year. We had two blowouts. So hey, that's, been, that's been normal. How many good semis have we had? What, two? Ohio State, Alabama? 
and uh, in Georgia, Oklahoma, was there another? Am I missing one? I think everything. I think every other semi besides that has been just completely lopsided. Yeah, even when you had like, just think about what was it? Florida State, Oregon. I remember being at that game. Yep. You know, and it turns out you Heisman know trophy winners build up, defending national champion going to be great. Turn into a blowout. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I'm not saying I don't think it would ruin the sport. Is my feeling. Last thing for me, where did the name Bear, nickname Bear, come from? That would be Lee Corso. It would have been, oh gosh, I think it might might have been just ahead of the Miami Ohio State National Championship game. And Kirk and I were sitting in the hotel, just kind of t-shirt and gym shorts, and probably it just just woke up. Or we going? To, I, I forget exactly what, what, what we were doing. Going to the go to work out. We're just getting breakfast, but we look—we look kind of like as you would look uh, sitting in a in a restaurant, just kind of getting out of bed. And anyone who's been around Kirk and I as well know that uh, we, we have a tendency of every every little inch on the table is going to be full with some type of appetizer or breakfast item or such. And so our table is kind of kind of loaded up with food. And Coach Corso comes wandering through the lobby, probably fresh off his morning walk. Walk. He had his his, his jeans on, his, his bomber jacket, leather jacket, and he sees us. I, no, 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 shame. Well, hey, Kirk Herbstreit, Chris Felica comes over and looks at the table and has that grin on his face. And uh, he looks at me, and he looks at Kirk, and he looks at me again, and he goes, "I'll give you my best Corso voice here. It's probably not going to even be very good." He goes, look at you, Felica. You just look like a big bear. All you do is eat, sleep, and I'll let you finish off the uh, yeah. third word that begins with the letter S. So uh, that that was the uh, that that was the, the dawn of the, of the nickname Bear. And a new identity was created, huh? <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. All right. Well, Chris, it's great having you on. I'm excited for all your success with everything. Um, as I said, I encourage people to follow you. It's pretty easy to follow Chris Felica. There's no, there's no underscores or anything in that no. on Twitter. And you can check out the gambling show he and he and Stanford Steve have on ESPN. And like I said, I would encourage you to follow him because he's got a lot of good stuff all over the place. Thanks for joining us today on the Audible, Chris. Absolutely, Bruce. Anytime. We'll talk again soon. Okay, Stu. Let's get to the mailbag. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. I know we've not done a great job of getting to these lately, but we will. I promise. Speaking of LSU, Craig Bayer in Baton Rouge. So Joe Oliva has become kind of a, a lightning rod at LSU with the Will Wade situation. And I think most of us in the media, whether we cover college basketball or not, are kind of like, he had to suspend Will Wade. The guy, right. you know, there's a, there's a recording of him brazenly cheating. But of course, the LSU... They're having a great season. They're in the Sweet 16 now. So Joe Oliva's their bad guy. I would guess that most of the LSU fan anger at Joe Oliva isn't solely about Will Wade, but more about the handling of the less, less miles firing and Coach O hiring, along with the rising cost of the game day experience. It doesn't help that Wade is Oliva's third basketball hire in the past 10 years. Is Joe Oliva, Bruce, the worst AD in college sports, or is he on the cusp of making Bruce's top AD list? He's been a lightning rod for a long time. I, I think some of this, I remember... I forgot where I was on the road, but Brando and I did a face, Facebook Live where Brando ranted and ranted. You know, some of it was the was the handling of the LSU Florida cancellation 
for some reason, I remember Tim kind of pinning that more a, a lot on Oliva as much as maybe on Greg Sankey. But I just think he's he's been one of these guys who that the LSU Les Miles, not the firing, the attempted dismissal the year before, that was so unwieldy and messy. You know, that's the part that I think is hard. I think also, and look, it's we're going to see what what happens with that Ogeron. I think it's the jury's still out. They just gave him a raise and an extension. They had their first, their most wins since I think 2005 or six years. But if you look at it and go, okay, who's the coach you would have wanted them to hire? He's the guy you just visited in College Station who's a former LSU assistant, Jimbo Fisher. And maybe people are going, wait a minute, Scott Woodward, who also had worked at LSU once upon a time, not as an AD, but when Nick Saban was there, if A&M was able to pull this off, how come LSU wasn't able to pull it off a year earlier, being to dislodge Jimbo from Tallahassee? But short of that, I don't know. I don't know what you wanted, what you want him to do when it comes to the Will Wade situation in regard to that. But he did hire Will Wade. I don't know. Should he have known this was a this could come down the pipe? Who knows? It seems like Will Wade has burned him pretty bad, you know, because he first came up in this stuff in the fall and they stood by him, and now you know he gets. It seems, at least, we'll use the word allege, allegedly gets caught allegedly kind of brazenly cheating, talking about making offers to kids, and won't even come in and talk to the AD about it, and somehow Aliva's the bad guy for suspending him. Though I will say, I, I do know part of that is because you've seen other schools like UNC, Kansas with Bill Self just say, well, we're, Arizona with Sean Miller is probably the most blatant, right? Like, we're going to dare you to do something about it. And I guess maybe that's what they wanted him to do there. But I think that when I think of Oliva, there's not a lot of, oh, yeah, he's a great AD because he did this moments, right? It's more exactly the kind of things you're talking about with the, the cancellation, the, the way he handled Miles, just the controversies like that. For Matthew Massey in Columbus, this is a timely one for me, Bruce. I talked to Kellen Mond uh, yesterday about working with George Whitfield in California. When college QBs train under gurus like Quincy Avery, who pays for that? I expect that guys like Avery are running a business, but surely not every QB or player can afford such a luxury, but I doubt the schools pay for the service. Also, how seriously are college coaches cultivating relationships with outsiders as a recruiting advantage? Obviously, Ryan Day has a relationship with Avery and may have made an impact on Justin Fields' transfer. Well, the kids pay for it. They have to pay for their trip to there and their lodging, you know, if it's somewhere remote. In the case of, if you're Kellen Mond, you got to pay to pay to to stay for a couple of days in San Diego. I know from, from talking to Whitfield in the past, they have to save documentation because it runs through people's compliance departments of how these trips are, how these trips are handled. And I think it depends on the, on the coach, how comfortable they, they are. I know Whitfield has a really good relationship with Jim Harbaugh and some of these guys are more comfortable with, uh, sending their, letting their quarterbacks go. I know, and I'm curious as to what you heard, but I know not, it wasn't that long ago, Jimbo Fisher was not comfortable with his quarterbacks going outside of him for any kind of private training slash tutelage. I think, I didn't ask him directly about it. I think he probably realizes it's, it's just part of the game now, but you better believe when the guy gets back to campus, because, you know, Ke Kellen Mon they started spring practice and Kellen Mon goes to spring break for a week comes back for the rest of spring practice. You better believe on that first day back, he's reminding him who his, who the coach he really has to answer to is, right? Well, the biggest thing, and I you know, got into this in my quarterback book a lot, was one of the things that came up 
from this one particular coach who's now head coach was, I don't want to hear what George says when you come back. Right. So it's like, you know, there are certain, you know, detail things they would, they're happy that they work on, but they don't want any of that instruction to override it. And it can be a little bit of a delicate situation. I know one, one particular talented quarterback who finished up his college career recently, where I think some of the things he was, you know, trusting from his private quarterback coach may not have aligned with the coaching with the head coach he had at his college. And I think that may have, you know, I think that they had some underwhelming results, to be honest. Yeah, I can see using a private quarterback coach when you're in high school. I can see using a private quarterback coach to get ready for the draft. But it does seem a little dicey when you're in college and you have both a head coach and presumably a position coach. Sometimes they're the same guy working with you year round or, or maybe nine months of the year. And then for a week here or there, you're going to go learn from somebody completely different. It's dicey, but like lots and lots of guys do it. Okay, we have time for one last question this week. Alex in Renton, Washington. Hey, Bruce and Stu, big fan of the podcast. Thanks for keeping it rolling during the quiet weeks of the offseason. Happy to do so. If college football is March Madness, who would be some of the lower-seeded teams that higher-seeded teams would not want to face? I take that as little guy schools, right? Who are some of the lesser known who are, who are the Waffords of college football right now that you would not want to see on your bracket when you say this are you talking about like i don't want north dakota state showing up if it would have that happen that way or are you talking about group of fives i mean he he didn't specify so uh, i think it's up to us to interpret but i what i don't think he means like who would be the seven and five team you wouldn't want to face i, I think yeah I wouldn't want to see North Dakota State. Yep. I mean, because they're they're so physical and they are so confident in what they do. I think there are probably some teams that would not want to play. Just ask Lincoln Riley. I don't think they would want to face that Army team. That's the one I was going to say. Pain in the butt to play that scheme. Yep. It's a pain in the butt to try to simulate it. Look, I mean, Paul Johnson had a couple of big, you know, had a bunch of big wins over the years at Georgia Tech, just because of it's a real curveball to face. Michigan plays them this year. That should be interesting. Maybe now, now one of the problems with this question is, like I was going to say Troy, because they've taken down several quote-unquote giants recently, but Neil Brown's gone. As soon as, as, soon as one of these guys emerges, they leave for a, a, a bigger job. Uh, one other one I might point out, who's had some success recently against Pac-12 schools, San Diego State. They are one of the rare schools left that is a true power-eye smash-mouth team. And you just don't see that a lot anymore. So even if the talent gap is there, you know, it's kind of like March Madness. If you run into a team that, that a, a mid-major school that plays a much different tempo than you're used to, you face San Diego State and it's like, whoa, we're used to facing hurry up spread offenses. What is this? Well, who's the, who are all these physical running backs? Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's actually something I had done a story on when I was at SI. Jeff Horton, you know, we talked to, he's our offensive coordinator. I'd been at Wisconsin, been in the NFL. He was like, yeah, we're Wisconsin with good weather. And they are, they do some things where they go, you know what? We just don't think a lot of defenses are used to fitting stuff defensively the way they were back in the day because they see so much spread and so much spread out stuff. Uh, there's an obvious other answer, and that's Boise State because they've given lots of people problems over they're the like years. but they're like in this analogy they're like gonzaga at this point like you know you're supposed to be worried about them that's that's a good that's a good comparison it's true without the appearance in the national championship game because as we talked about last week with ralph russo nobody wants to see that 
That's right. All right. So please send in all your questions to the audible at gmail.com. The audible pod at gmail.com. There you go, Bruce. Um, safe travels back. Thank you. See you guys next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the audible on Apple podcasts, Google play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, leave us a five star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial. Come on, get over here. Yeah, we'll talk about it for you.